Let's pray. Father, as we look at your word, I pray that you give us insight. I pray that you be with these graduates. I pray, Lord, that even as we consider what is in front of them, I pray that it would sharpen the way we look at our own life, regardless where we are on the journey. I thank you, God, for your perfect word. I pray that it would change us. We thank you for your son who willfully gave up his life for our sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible, if you'd open up to 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, we're moving into, other than David, the king that is most often lauded and celebrated in Judah, King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, and I've entitled this message, A Light in the Darkness, A Light in the Darkness. And that's exactly what Hezekiah was. We'll see as we spend some time on his life that he wasn't a perfect man. If he was a perfect man, we'd have no need for the greater son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. But Hezekiah was a predictable man in the course of his life. And today we're going to look at several characteristics. And I pray that this would not only be a challenge to our graduates as we look at these five characteristics of Hezekiah, but I pray that all of us would be encouraged in our Christian lives. Second Kings chapter 18, uh, let's read the first eight verses. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called the Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel so that there was none like him, all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from watchtower to fortified city. Five characteristics of King Hezekiah. The first one I want to look at with you today is Hezekiah's faithfulness. Hezekiah's faithfulness. Several terms that illustrate his allegiance to Yahweh, his love of God. And we read in verse 3, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, According to all that David, his father, had done. Uh, it is sobering, isn't it, to think about, you know, when we pass away from this life, there's a lot of things that could be said. And we've all been to a lot of funerals. We can talk about someone's love for their college football team. We can talk about their humor. We can talk about their hobbies. We can talk about their friends. But in the end, what sums up our life is what we do and how we respond to the Lord God Almighty. 
many things and many ways to frame a life. But ultimately, what marked Hezekiah's life was that the movie reel of his life, aren't you thankful that when we look at our life, it's not just the snapshots, it's the movie reel. You see, when we look at our life, there's places where we stumble, there's places where we fall, there's places where we volitionally move towards sin. But when we look at the movie reel of our life, we get the picture of the journey. And when we look at the picture in the movie reel of Hezekiah's life, we look at a man who loved God, a man whose life was impacted by the grace of God. And he did right. That, that term is fascinating. It means to walk in a straight path. To walk in a straight path. It, it speaks about his life in following God, doing what is right in the eyes of God. Do you remember when uh, we went through the book of Judges years ago? One of the key phrases in the book of Judges, if you want to understand the, the book in a single phrase, is that in the, it says in Judges 17, 6, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that really was a snapshot of, of unbelieving, distrusting Israel. But, but Hezekiah, the trajectory of his life was he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. And I say this to the graduates. I pray that it would catch all of our attention but you're either going to do what is right in your own eyes or you're going to follow the way of your creator. You're either going to do what is right in your own eyes, and that is going to involve everything a part of your journey. That's not just going to involve your, your church decisions. This is going to involve the, the, the trajectory of your entire life. Are you going to live what is right in your own eyes or are you going to live what is right in the eyes of God? And Hezekiah was a man who experienced the grace of God, and he followed in a straight path. Another way that it is phrased here to speak of the faithfulness of Hezekiah, it says, he removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. This is fascinating. You realize that how many times we've gone through the book of Kings and Second Kings, and we've read things about the high places. You go, I'm just going to highlight some of them for you. You won't have time to turn unless you're a Bible drill extraordinaire. But um, maybe some of y'all are, though, so go for it if you want to. Rehoboam, 1 Kings chapter 14, 23 and 24. Remember what it said about, about him under uh, his reign, for they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green tree. Abijah, the second king of Judah, Abijah was his nickname. First Kings 15, verse 3, speaks about he walked in all the sins that his fathers did before him. His heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. Jehoshaphat, first Kings 22, 42 through 44 and what we read there, it says, he walked in all the way of Asa, his father. He did not turn aside from it, doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Yet the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. You move from Jehoshaphat, you come to Jehoram. 
Jehoram's also, his nickname was Joram. In 2 Kings 8, we learned that he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That's all you got to say. Moving on. Walked in the way of the kings of Israel. They had high places. The next one is Ahaziah, 2 Kings chapter 8. And we learned that he walked in the way of the house of Ahab. That means all bets are off. You're going to forsake everything of Yahweh and do it your own way, including pagan ritual and pagan worship. We read about the queen who wanted to lead Athaliah. We got into Joash, Jehoash, and 2 Kings chapter 12. It speaks about him doing right in the eyes of the Lord. But then there's that caveat that we see so often in our study of the kings. And it said in 2 Kings 12, 3, nevertheless... The high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. You move from Joash and you come into Amaziah. And you know what you read there? Again, commendable things that happened in Amaziah's life. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, yet not like David his father. Now remember, Hezekiah was known to be like David his father. And then it says something about Amaziah, but the high places were not removed. The people still sacrificed, sacrificed, made offerings on the high places. Uzziah, what had happened there? Commendable things said, nevertheless, the high places. 2 Kings 15.4. Jotham, same phrase, 15.35. Ahaz, it went a whole nother level. Ahaz not only tolerated the building of the high places, King Ahaz worshipped at the high places. And now we come into King Hezekiah. And what did he do? He, he put them aside. He put them aside. I, I love this because uh, he resolved in his heart to follow God. And, and we know that, just, just to put as a parenthesis, anytime someone in the scripture resolves in their heart to follow God, it takes place after a work of grace. <laughs> it doesn't happen before a work of grace. It follows a work of grace because man in and of themselves don't go after the ways of God. Hezekiah experienced God's grace. And what did he do? He took it serious. He removed the high places. You remember that the high places, it was such a pagan way of looking at the world you get up higher, you have a better chance for the gods to hear you. And how ridiculous, the God who, we use this phrase in creation, it's a phrase called creation ex nihilo. It means creation out of nothing. The God who creates out of nothing and brings the world into existence doesn't need you to go to higher elevation in order to be heard by your plea. And yet they were so mesmerized by all of the people around them, they got caught up into it. But Hezekiah, he didn't tolerate it. And then it speaks of the, the sacred stones, the, the Asherah poles is the ways you could look at verse 4, the pillars, sacred stones. You've got all of this here, and it represents pagan idolatry, wooden images, sacred pillars. But it really fascinating is that it speaks of the bronze snake made by Moses. Did you catch that? He removed the high places, broke the pillars, cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made back in Numbers. I don't think we want to know what the people of uh, 
Israel, uh, or no, I don't think we want to know what Hezekiah thinks about the worshiping of relics and pictures, right? Why, why do we, as Protestants, not put images all over these walls? Because we believe that one of the things we learn from 2 Kings chapter 18 is the danger of taking objects that are meant to lead us to God and begin to revere and venerate those objects over the ways of God. It's almost like at that point we, we fall back into the commandments of, of Exodus chapter 20, where we begin to revere and worship the pictures that were seeking to point us to God. And these people had taken a period of time and taken a place where God had revealed himself to Moses, and now they had turned that into a rebellious act, and Hezekiah was not standing for it one bit. He would have been a terrible, seeker-friendly mega-preacher. He took it, and he smashed it. He said, no way. What does this teach us about his life? He saw the danger. He was a faithful man. He was a man who sought to follow God with all his heart. I thought about this, graduates, when you think about Romans, you know, like uh, we read this and we read it post, we're, in, we're under the new covenant. And we look back and, and so many of the things that are happening with Israel and their fight against physical enemies and all of the realities that they, they experience, we look at it and we go, okay, these things are written for our instruction, Romans 15, 4. What are we to learn here? I, I pray that one thing we would learn and see, Hezekiah, at this stage in his life and at this point, is a great example of what it looks like to follow after God, to make no provision for the flesh. Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. It keeps going. It says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. He trusted in the Lord. It means to be confident. It means to place your dependence. The Hebrew word really to trust. You trust in God. And, and in the Bible, this word is often used to talk about trusting in people. It's when we put our confidence in people, our confidence in people, our confidence in things. It says in Psalm 44, verse 6, For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. A lot of people, and we know this, it, it helps us remind us of the need of our heart, doesn't it? A lot of people put their trust in their health. They put their trust in their workout plan. Put, they put their trust in their, uh, their mutual funds, their 401k. They put their trust in a $26,000 credit card balance. I mean, not a balance, but a credit line. That'd be sort of nerve wracking if you had 26,000 years, but on the credit card. But what I'm saying is, is like, there's so many ways we can seek to offset true trust in God. And Hezekiah is a reminder to us today that, that the Christian life, we're called to trust God. We're called to follow him. You can't trust God without trusting his promises. There's so many promises in the Bible. I remember in studying when I was out of town, I read somewhere there's over 30,000 promises in the Bible. 
30,000. And, and what are we to do to trust God? We trust his promise. We put confidence in his promise. We put confidence in his word. We put confidence in God. It says in Psalm 112, 7, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Psalm 115, 9, oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. A lot of you have learned this passage. If you've never heard it, listen to how encouraging this is. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your path. I'll never forget years ago when I first learned how to snow ski, and I was uh, the guy who was teaching me was uh, amazing. I, it was sort of depressing because I could barely even turn. And this guy was skiing backwards to watch me. Skiing backwards, watching me tell me what I was doing wrong. I got a little irritated at him, actually. The, uh, I was like, I'll put this pole right. I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> but he was teaching me. And you know what he would always say? He'd say, look, you've got to lean in. You got to lean down the hill. Don't put your weight on your up your uphill ski. Put your weight on your downhill ski. You put your weight on your downhill ski, it's contrary to human reason because when you put your weight on your downhill ski, you're feeling like you're going to fall down the mountain. But until you lean on the downhill ski, you never can ski. What happens in life? We seek to live the Christian life putting our weight on the uphill ski. We're saying we trust God, but we don't want to trust him. We don't want to follow him. Uh, the question, it gets so practical. It, it's easy to preach sermons and sometimes get in my car and on my way home, start realizing, wait a minute, I got to apply the sermon I just preached. But what does it mean to trust God? It means to believe his promises, to trust in his promises, to put all your weight, so to speak, on those promises, to lean on those promises, not in your own creativity, not in your own ingenuity, not in your own, not in your own answers, but to follow God, to trust God, to walk with God. And that's what Hezekiah modeled for us. He also held fast to God. He held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord God, that the Lord commanded Moses. This is a picture that he was a man of the word. One of the reasons that I believe that he tore down the high places and all of the idolatry is because the Mosaic law forbid it. So in order to follow the word, you follow what God has said. He didn't depart. He held fast. The word held fast means to cling to, to cling to. I'll never forget when uh, Will was little bitty. He's still little bitty, but he's nine now. But he was about two. And uh, I went to see the mocks play, the moccasins. I don't know what they call them now. And they changed the name so many times. But UTC, Chattanooga. And uh, their basketball team was playing. And I grew up watching the mocks. And I wanted to see him, and I had a buddy that had really good seats, and so we went up and watched Chattanooga, and they were really good. We sat right at courtside before the game. The guy I went with, he said, oh, I got, we can go back here and get free food, and that's always fun. And uh, there's a big room with all these uh, moccasin uh, boosters, and in the room was the, uh, the mock's mascot was Scrappy, right? Scrappy? 
Uh, and uh, Scrappy was, I can't remember what Scrappy was. It was a strange looking mascot. But Scrappy was in the room and Will was eating a hot dog. I had gotten him all situated and he was eating a hot dog and Scrappy was going around the room. And I was a little nervous because I didn't think Will would do really well with Scrappy. And Scrappy was going around the room and, and Scrappy made a turn when I least expected it. And now Will's eating his hot dog looking straight down and Scrappy's right here. And Will looked up and saw Scrappy. Have you noticed like with little kids, there's usually like a five second cry delay and you just go one, one thousand, two, one thousand when they get hurt. And it was like, Will just had that little buffer zone where he was like, okay, uh, alert, you know, uh, all systems emergency. And it sort of just paused and everything within him was building up what came next. And he screamed and Scrappy was scared. The whole room was like, what just happened? And he clung to me. It was like, give me my father and just hold fast. Graduates, if you seek to walk in a Christianity in which you're not clinging to God, it's a man-made form of Christianity. Clinging to God is a picture of walking with Christ. Cling to, to stay with. It's a picture of abiding. Jesus speaks about John 15, abide in me and I in you. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. And Hezekiah clinged to the Lord. He clung to the Lord. You know, Jehoram, sadly, it says in 2 Kings chapter 3, nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam. I, I think it's accurate to say everyone in this room this morning, we're all clinging to something. What are you clinging to? You may have to flesh that out for a while and really think and ponder and discern what that means and what that looks like. But, but here's the deal. We're all worshipers. We're all worshiping something. And, and when we look at this, it's like you've got this uh, straight path. Uh, if you've ever had, you know, they, they tell you even when you're a young kid and you do all these weird things in PE where one of them, like if you if you close your eyes and you try to walk, you know, straight and some people walk straight, but some people are all over the map, you know, like they're walking towards the wall and they have to stop on watch out. But, but, but your path, your, 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 your walk, you, where you begin to walk is going to have all of these other things fall into this picture. A man who walks the right path is a man who clings to God. He's a man who follows his word. He's a, she's a woman that, that follows after God with her whole heart. He did not depart from the commandments. He kept the commandments. He didn't leave. He didn't leave. He didn't run away. He kept them. It means to guard, to preserve, to be careful, to watch over to watch carefully over the word. That was the life and the picture of Hezekiah. He was a man who was faithful. But second of all, the second characteristic we see about Hezekiah, we see Hezekiah's prospering. Hezekiah's prospering. Look at verse 7. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. 
He prospered. What does this mean? Uh, We have to understand it in the context of the kings, and we have to understand it in the context of the... uh, the blessings and cursings of the law. You remember as you end the book of Deuteronomy, you have blessings and cursings. If you follow me, this is what happens. But if you depart from me, this is what happens. What happened with Israel and Assyria and what we just read about in the previous couple chapters, Assyria in 722, they faced the consequence of turning away from God. Hezekiah prospered. And how did he prosper? Well, in 1 Samuel 18, verse 5, listen to how it describes David. And David went out and was successful. That's the word. Prosper. Wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. 1 Samuel 18, verse 14, David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And you remember what David said to his son, to Solomon, near the end of his life? He says, uh, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. Then he says, that you may prosper in all that you do. And for these kings at this time and this context, it speaks of victory in battle. He prospered. The word is, uh, is fascinating. It, it speaks of a person with understanding. It can mean prospering. And here in this context, that's what he is speaking of in the sense of military might and military victory, but it speaks of understanding and this prudence and wisdom that comes with walking and trusting God. And here's what I want to encourage you. I want to encourage all our students. And uh, my dad always used to say, talk to all the students, and then the, the parents will listen when you're talking to the students. But what does it mean to prosper in the new covenant? You know, if you've been in this church, you know how I abhor prosperity theology. It's unbiblical. It comes through the mouth of heretics. People that will teach you that if you follow God, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and rich. Well, wealthy and healthy. They're teaching you a a gospel that's not complete. They're they're, they're teaching a gospel that's not true. But, But so what do we do? Because when we look at this and we think back to the Old Testament, we understand there's a physical enemy there's physical blessings and that are taking place under this time period. But I don't want you to forget the fact that God would have equipped Hezekiah with understanding and prudence as a leader because he was a man who was following God. And I want to encourage you, students, how do you walk in understanding? How do you walk in prosperity? And when I mean prosperity, how do you walk in soul prosperity. It's not the same Hebrew word, but it's very similar when it speaks about the blessed man in Psalm 1, when it says he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and all that he does, he prospers. There's a prospering of the world 
and there's a prospering of the people of God. The prospering of the people of God, they bear fruit in season. And there's going to be a lot of different seasons of your life. There'll be seasons that you'll experience in college. There'll be seasons of everything going right. There'll be seasons of adversity. There'll be seasons of calamity. There'll be seasons that are hard. And yet, how can you experience soul prosperity in the midst of life? In, in the New Testament, the word blessed is the idea of spiritually satisfied. Spiritually satisfied. How do you experience blessing? How do you experience inner joy, inner peace, inner assurance, inner peace that passes all understanding? It takes place as you seek after the Lord with all your heart. And I want to encourage you not only to seek the Lord in faithfulness, but to recognize the blessing of following God far outweighs the happiness, the temporal happiness that the world offers. But then thirdly, we see something about Hezekiah. We see Hezekiah's enemies. He has them, and you're going to have them. You're going to have enemies no matter what. Have you ever thought about that? Whether you follow God or not, you're going to have enemies. But you're going to have a unique kind of enemy if you seek to follow God. If you seek to follow God, you'll face persecution. It may be subtle, may be extreme. You may be called a bigot. You may be called a phony. You may be called an extremist. Uh, and I'll tell you, in, in the world of the sexual revolution that we're facing right now, you will face a cost if you follow after Christ with all your heart. I pray you'd understand that. I don't say it to scare you, but I say it to you truthfully. If you follow Christ and seek not to be the kind of person that picks and chooses when they bring up Jesus, you're going to face a cost. There's a lot of people that are very careful when they speak of Jesus. They speak of Jesus in places where it's safe, but they'd be very, 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 it'd be very odd to see them speak of Jesus in a place where it would cost them. That's why they'll never speak of Jesus in their workplace. They'll never speak of Jesus around lost friends. But around Bible studies, they're very adamant. And they're very careful about doctrine. I say that not to push them down or make fun of them. But I say that to us to, to encourage us to, to, to understand that we're going to face enemies. Enemies are part of walking the Christian life. I, um, one of the books that you were given today is called A Strange New World by Carl Truman. And it basically speaks of like, what are the roots and, and where did this sexual revolution come from? What are the ideologies of how we've gotten here? But I'm telling you, if you seek to navigate the world and try to please everyone and try to be a friend of the culture, you'll walk into a progressive church and it will meet your needs. And 10 years from now and 15 years from now, your life will look nothing of biblical Christianity. You'll find teachers that will suit your needs. They will speak words that pacify your moral desires, but they will be comfortable enough to not put you in harm's way. I say that to you because if you follow Christ, 
you will be ridiculed. If you seek to follow Christ with one foot in the world and one foot in the church, it's not going to work. I remember uh, I was going, when I went back to school a few years ago, um, I was at school in North Carolina and one day it snowed on campus. I had to go for like a, a week at a time. So I guess I had to go about, I can't remember. I went over several weeks. I had to go up there and I was there and it snowed on campus. And uh, I thought it was fun. I mean, I like snow. I wanted to get out in it. I didn't want to stay in the hotel room. So there's about seven or eight students in the classroom. And the rest of all the guys that didn't come to class were on this big screen. And they were all up there. And a couple of them were good buddies of mine. And we hung out in the class. And so I thought it was hilarious that they were on the screen. So we were texting each other while the professor was talking. And it was hilarious. And I would say something in a text. And I would then look at the screen to watch them read the text. And they'd start laughing. And it got me tickled. And I'm sitting there. And I'm having to look at the professor, make him think I'm listening. But I'm looking at them while I'm looking at him, and I'm looking at them, and then I'm trying to text. It's impossible to be in a class and do all that. There's no way you can pull it off. I couldn't keep up with them. I couldn't keep up with the professor. I couldn't keep up with anything, right? That's what it's like to live in the world, seeking to follow the world and follow Christ at the same time. Hezekiah understood. You can't do it. You can't do it. You're going to have enemies, and he has enemies. And it says in verse 7 that he rebelled against the king of Assyria. For Hezekiah, Assyria represented all the things of the pagan world. And he had a choice. He could either follow the ways of Assyria. He could either do things to compromise with Assyria, or he could follow after God. We see later on that he had to weigh the cost. He faces enemies. They come from Lachish. Lachish is a big city about 40 miles uh, away from Jerusalem. And what happens eventually is Assyrians conquer Lachish and they come to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem, they are taunting him. They are calling him out. They are undermining his leadership. And at this point, he has to weigh the fact that his northern neighbors were taken off into captivity by these people. They are not nice people. And at that point, he had to make a decision. What is he going to do? Is he going to compromise? How is he going to weigh the cost? How is he going to live? You're going to be in a situation, while different from Hezekiah and Assyria, is going to feel very similar. You're going to have to navigate understanding, if I take stands, if I follow Christ, it will cost me. But you have to understand, anyone in the Bible that has followed after Christ, has faced persecution. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Matthew 5 says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your rewarding is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Second Timothy, Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There'll be opposition. There'll be opposition. Be prepared for it. If you seek to follow Christ, understand and embrace it. The fourth one, however, we see Hezekiah's stumble. We're going to go back and cover this more in the next couple of weeks, but I want you to see something. The Bible gives realistic pictures of people. 
It shows their life. It shows their stumbles. It shows their missteps. It shows their sinful choices. Hezekiah, in verse 14, it appears buckles to the pressure of Assyria at the doorstep, and he seeks to bargain with his enemy. And as a result of the bargain that he makes with Assyria, he takes that which was in the temple to seek to give money to the Assyrians. It says in verse 14, And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria at Lachish, saying, I have done wrong. Withdraw from me. Whatever you impose on me, I will bear. And the king of Assyria required of Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. And what he does is he takes that which is in the temple to seek to satisfy the payment that he has to pay. And we see a godly man here make a misstep. And I want you to understand something, graduates. When you look at godly individuals, whether in the scripture or whether in the church of today, you have to be reminded godly people fall into stumbling. They stumble. James says we all stumble in many ways. First John says, if we say we're without sin, we're a liar and the truth is not in us. How do we deal with it? How do we understand it? I, I think here it's, it's healthy to see that godly people often make sinful choices. And people that look at me strange, and I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about in general, people that look at me strange in those situations when I say something like that, I don't even know what world they live in. I don't trust them as far as I could throw them. If somebody looks at somebody and says, wait a minute, you mean to tell me a godly person falls into stumbling? I don't trust anything about your life if you're a professing Christian. Because if we're honest with each other and we're transparent, we immediately understand that reality. We immediately resonate with Romans chapter 7 and the struggle. We immediately understand Galatians and the, the battle of the flesh and the spirit. But what we see here is that there's something else that happens. You know, we, in verses 9 through 12, it's restated about what had just happened to Israel in the north. There was intimidation for Hezekiah. But I want to encourage you here this morning. That's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. We have Hezekiah's faithfulness, number one. We have his prosperity, number two. We have his persecution, number three. We have Hezekiah's stumble where he compromises, number four. But number five, we have Hezekiah's repentance. So many times people will tell you what you need to do in order to follow God. But sometimes graduates, I think we do a bad job of what do you do to follow God when you blow it? How do you recover from a stumble? How do you recover from a horrible compromise? How do you recover from an ungodly action? And by God's grace in the life of Hezekiah, we don't see directly his interaction with God after this takes place, but we see enough of it to see the heart of repentance that was taking place in his life. You say, what do you mean? Well, what happens is there in verse 17, there's three different groups mentioned. I'm going to have to go quick. I got my eye on the clock and my eye here on my verse here. The king of Assyria sent Tartan, Rabsaris, Rabshakeh. Who are these? Tartan was a general. Rabsaris, a high official in the palace. 
Rabshakeh was a commander. It's not a proper name. It just speaks of a commander of the army. And the Rabshakeh was a guy who was incredibly skilled as a diplomat. He spoke the language of the Jews. He spoke Hebrew. He spoke in their language, and he understood their dialogue. He understood a little bit of their religion in the way an Assyrian would look at it. And he was skilled. And what he did was, if you read on your own, verse 18, down to the end of the chapter, he now is coming to Jerusalem, and he is taunting Israel. He's taunting Hezekiah. He's saying, where are you going to turn? You're going to turn to Egypt? They can't help you. He understood the past of Israel. He understood just in the previous chapters the way Judah had, or Israel had gone to the Egyptians for help. He taunts Hezekiah's leadership. He taunts Hezekiah's reforms of tearing down the high places. And in all of this, this is where it's put up or shut up for Hezekiah, a man who just compromised with the temple and compromised in paying the debt and compromised in paying to the Assyrians. What is he going to do now? Is he going to bow to the Assyrians or is he going to trust God? And look what happens when we get to chapter 19. We get to chapter 19, and it's a summary after all that the Rabshakeh says and mocking Israel. And now, as soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth. There's no strength to bring them forth. You know what happens here? He hears the words. You remember under the ministry, I think it was of Elijah, that the, the acting king in Israel didn't even seek his guidance. He wanted nothing to do with him. But, but what happens? Hezekiah Hears this taunt, he sees the impending danger to his people of Assyria, and he humbles himself. He does what is consistent with repentance by covering himself with sackcloth. He tore his clothes. Where did he go when he needed help? He went into the house of the Lord. And who does he long to hear from at this point? None other than Isaiah the prophet. He wanted to hear a word from God, and he knew Isaiah the prophet would faithfully deliver it. Where do you run to? Graduates, when we look at Hezekiah, we see a man who failed. We see a man who compromised, but we see a man give a godly picture of how to recover when you blow it. You continue to walk after Jesus. First John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The most righteous thing you can do when you blow it is confess and repent of your sin and keep walking. You may be here this morning and you think so much about what it means to be godly. Now that you've blown it, it's almost as if you're on the sideline and there's nothing left for you. Well, guess what? Hezekiah is a model of what it looks like to live and walk in repentance. To humble yourself before God, to seek God in prayer, 
to seek God in his word, to seek godly counsel. Next time we'll flesh all of these out. But today, graduates, I want you to be encouraged. We look at the life of Hezekiah and we learn some remarkable characteristics that only God's grace can produce in our life. And I want to read you one verse as we close. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And my prayer for all of you, my prayer for this church is that we would learn from the life of Hezekiah and that we would live following God wholeheartedly, that we would live pursuing him. Tommy read to you this verse, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. I'm excited about all I pray that lies in front of you. What an exciting time. And I pray you have a long life filled with amazing adventure and all kinds of things. But I pray your life is lived to the glory of God. I pray it's not compromised by seeking hopes in the world that can give no hope. But I pray like Hezekiah, you recognize what's at stake and you seek after Jesus with your whole heart. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these graduates. I thank you, God, for the opportunity that lies in front of them. I pray they would see that um, it's only in Christ Jesus that they can find true hope and true meaning and true grace. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'd stand with me here as we close. Charlie's going to be